This is The Church is the World, Chapter 2, Episode 6. The Fertile Crescent, Climatology, and a Look into the Region of Cush. Last week, I covered the four rivers of Genesis, as well as the geography of the area known as Mesopotamia. This week, I'm expanding out a bit and covering the area known as the Fertile Crescent, as well as the climate of that time and place. I'll also delve into a theory as to the location of the land of Cush, where the Gion River is said to have flowed. So let's get started. The Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, is a roughly crescent-shaped region in Western Asia and the Nile Valley and Delta. The land there is comparatively moist and fertile in an otherwise arid and semi-arid region. In the current usage of the phrase, the Fertile Crescent includes Mesopotamia. It also includes the Levant, which is the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. The modern-day countries with significant territory within the Fertile Crescent are Iraq, Kuwait, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, and Egypt. It also includes the southeastern region of Turkey and the western region of Iran. The region is frequently called the Cradle of Civilization because within the region developed some of the earliest human civilizations. These civilizations were possible due to the water supplies and agricultural resources available. They were also spurred forward through technological advances such as the development of writing, glass, the wheel, and the use of irrigation. In the time of the ancient world, Assyria made up a large part of the center of the area, while at the eastern end was Babylon. Water resources, besides the Tigris and Euphrates, included the Jordan River flowing from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea and the Nile. At its maximum extent, the Fertile Crescent also includes some parts of southern Egypt. The inner boundary of the semicircle is defined by the dry climate of the Syrian desert to the south. Around the outer boundary are the arid and semi-arid lands of the Caucasus Mountains to the north, the Anatolian Highlands to the northwest, and the Sahara Desert to the southwest, not to forget the Mediterranean Sea. The western zone around the Jordan River and the upper Euphrates gave rise to the first known farming settlements, which are believed to date to about 9000 BC and include sites such as Jericho. In this area, it is thought that grains were being grown as long as 9,000 years ago. Also, seedless figs have been discovered in the Jordan River Valley, leading researchers to believe that fig trees were being planted over 11,000 years ago. Note that these figs were seedless, meaning that they required some sort of human manipulation to spread any distance. This region, along with Mesopotamia, which by definition lies on the eastern side of the Fertile Crescent, also saw the emergence of early complex societies during the succeeding Bronze Age. There is early evidence from the region for writing and the formation of hierarchical city-state societies. Linguistically, the Fertile Crescent was a region of great variety. Historically Semitic languages prevailed in the lowlands, while in the mountains to the east and north a number of generally unrelated languages were found including Elamite, Kassite, and Hurro-Uratane. The evidence which does exist suggests that already by the 3rd millennium BC and into the 2nd millennium, several language groups existed. These included Sumerian, a non-Semitic language. There will be a deeper dive into the Sumerian culture in the very near future, as it was probably the largest society in the time period between Noah and Abraham. Semitic languages, such as Akkadian, Amorite, Aramaic, 
Arabic, Hebrew, and Phoenician were also used in the area. The land formed an important link between Africa, Asia, and Europe, as it remains so today. This location has allowed the Fertile Crescent to retain a greater amount of biodiversity and is of great importance to the modern distribution of Old World flora and fauna, including the spread of humanity. More on that land leak in a minute. The region's dramatic variety of elevation gave rise to many species of edible plants for early experiments in agriculture. Most importantly, the Fertile Crescent was home to the eight early founder crops. These were wheat, einkorn, barley, flax, chickpeas, regular peas, lentils, and bitter vetch. So when I first came across these founder crops, I was familiar with six of the eight, but two were utterly foreign to me, at least until I looked them up. Einkorn is a species of wheat. The name is actually German, with ein meaning the number one, and corn meaning a grain. In English, it is usually called einkorn as well, but sometimes referred to as little spelt. I doubt that this is the corn from the Islamic creation story, since Muhammad would have never heard the German word for the wheat he was familiar with. Bitter vetch is a different story. As the name implies, it is extremely bitter, and this bitterness can only be removed through several iterations of boiling in water. The reason it was a founder crop wasn't for regular human consumption, although it was sometimes used for medicinal reasons. Bitter vetch was probably cultivated because the crop does really well for livestock feeding, especially for cattle and sheep. Speaking of livestock, several of the most important species of domesticated livestock, cows, goats, sheep, and pigs, were tamed in the region and in the prehistoric time period. In case the answer ever comes up on Jeopardy, researchers estimate that the sheep and goats were the first to be domesticated. Between the 12th and 10th millennia BC, pigs came next in the 10th millennium BC, followed by cattle in the 9th millennium BC. So man has had the ability to have a bacon cheeseburger for about 10,000 years. Now that's saying something. A few other species, the camel, domesticated in the 5th millennium BC, and the horse in the 4th millennium BC, lived nearby in Central Asia and Arabia. Cats, while not livestock, but worthy of a mention, were domesticated in the 9th millennium BC in this region. Dogs are considered to be the first domesticated animal, well before any other listed, but they are also thought to have been domesticated in Europe. They had made it to Egypt and are depicted on an artifact known as the Moscow Cup, dating to the 5th millennium BC. This is interesting since the dogs represented in these drawings resemble a greyhound and seem to indicate selective breeding. Also, their presence in the 5th millennium BC artifact is very indicative of commerce between Egypt and Europe. Now a little more on a specific area within the Fertile Crescent and pretty much the area where Abraham and later the Israelite tribes lived. Some call this area Levant, but this word did not come into usage for this purpose until the French started using it after World War I. But for the sake of brevity, I'll use the word Levant for now. It is roughly the area of present-day Israel. Geographically, the area Levant is divided between a coastal plain, hill country to the east, and the Jordan Valley joining the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. This distance, from the Mediterranean to the Dead Sea, is only about 53 miles or 85 kilometers. 
so we're not talking about an overly large area. Rainfall decreases from the north to the south, causing the northern region of the area to be more populated than the southern. Levant is at the focus of three major trade routes easily linking two continents, Africa and Asia, and as travel expanded, Europe makes a third continent. This factor alone made it a central location for religious and cultural influences from Egypt, Syria, Mesopotamia, and Asia Minor. The first route is commonly referred to as the Coastal Route and connected Gaza and the Philistine coast north to Joppa, Phoenicia, and ending in Anatolia. The second route was referred to as the Hill Route. It went through Negev, Hebron, and Jerusalem. Then it went further north to Samaria, Shiloh, Kadesh, and Damascus. Finally, there was a route referred to as the King's Highway. It traveled north from Iliad, east of the Jordan, through Amman to Damascus, and connected the so-called Frankincense Road north from Yemen and South Arabia. But what about the climate of the region? Before I look at the climate of the time, I must address how exactly we, in our present time, can deduce what the climate was like then. In the time period where there were people, but before instrumental measurements of the climate were made, some of the gaps in our knowledge of the climate can be deduced from documentary records of events that relate to the weather. Such indirect evidence comes in the form of agricultural records, wine harvest dates, and phenological records. For the record, phenological records are complimations of the annual events of plants, such as leaf opening, flowering, fruiting, and leaf fall, together with climatic observations. A great deal of work was done on this subject up through the mid-1900s, but it fell out of use. Recently, there has been a resurgence of the subject as part of efforts to identify the effects of global warming on flora and fauna. Where we do not have either instrumental observations or documentary records, much of the information about the climate of that time is obtained from what are commonly referred to as proxy data. These data are obtained by analyzing a wide variety of materials whose properties are affected by the surrounding climate. Such data come in the form of tree rings, ice cores, ocean sediments, coral growth rings, and pollens. This data rarely provide a direct measurement of a single meteorological parameter, but instead point towards overall conditions. As an example, the width of tree rings is a function of temperature and rainfall over the growing season, but also relates to groundwater levels arising from the rainfall in prior seasons. It is only where the trees are growing near their climatic limit that most of the growth can be attributed to a single parameter, such as the temperature of a specific season of a single year. For other records, such as the analysis of pollen content in lake sediments, or the remains of organisms deposited in ocean sediments, drawing accurate climatic conclusions depends largely on knowing the sensitivity of the specific plants or organisms to the climate, and how their distribution might be a measure of the climate at the time. The scientific knowledge of the changes in world climate over the last few thousand years was transformed during the 20th century. Before then, no one thought that the historical climate had been any different than the way it is now. This lack of knowledge was partially due to an interpretation of classical literature, which on its surface described the climate in similar terms to the current experience, Studies of written works from classical Greece through the early years of the 20th century had concluded that there had been no significant change in the climate since about the 5th century BC. These analyses were based on accounts of the agricultural fertility of the country, the nature of freshwater streams and rivers, 
and the dates of planting and harvesting. This view changed gradually during the subsequent decades, where it is now believed that the climate has indeed changed on almost every timescale and in every part of the world. It is now believed that the climate has always been constantly changing, but that the rate of change is unperceivably slow, especially without accurate historical measurements. The only real exception to this is when a large-scale event, such as a volcanic eruption, causes an immediate change. As it happened in 1816, the so-called year without a summer. And with that background, let's get to the climate of that region and time period. The overall picture is that by about 6,000 years ago, the post-glacial warming trend had reached a peak. This was mainly a northern hemisphere summer phenomenon. On the basis of evidence from tree pollen, the average summer temperature in the middle latitudes of the northern hemisphere was about 4 degrees Fahrenheit or 2 to 3 degrees Celsius warmer than at present, possibly as a result of what is called the Milankovitch effect, where the Earth wobbles in its orbit around the Sun. Now this warming was a little north of Mesopotamia, but it should give an overall sense of what was happening. Then, around 5,500 years ago, during the early stages of the development of the ancient civilizations of Egypt and Mesopotamia, the climate began to cool gradually and became drier. These changes were small compared with the sudden shifts at the end of and during the last ice age. But some of the changes were extreme. The Sahara dried up, desert formed where giraffes, elephants, and antelope had once lived. And more generally, there is evidence of a decline in rainfall in the Middle East and North Africa setting in around 4,000 years ago. This trend towards cooler, drier conditions continued up until near the end of the first millennium AD, but was punctuated by warmer periods. There is also considerable evidence of mountain glaciers around the world expanding around 2500 BC, but then receding to high elevations around 2000 BC. Further glacial expansions occurred around 1400 BC to 1200 BC. In between these colder episodes, the climate was warmer with glaciers receding to higher elevations around the world. This area is believed to have suffered from periods of severe drought, which may have influenced periods of nomadic wanderings. The cycle seems to have been repeated a number of times, as you would expect over a long term, during which a reduced rainfall decreases local food production, with farmers spending increasing amounts of time with their livestock, primarily sheep, and away from growing crops. You must remember that in this era, food could not be imported, as it would easily spoil long before it could be transported any distance. You either grew or raised your food, or moved to an area that could, or you starved. That was their life. With each dry cycle, it is believed that they would revert to being nomadic, and when rain would return, they would then settle around important sources of water. With this settling, they would also begin to spend increasing amounts of time growing crops. This led to increased prosperity, which leads to a resurgence of regional and eventually international trade. The growth of small villages leads to towns, then to city-states. These city-states attract the attention of neighboring powers who may invade to capture control of regional trade routes or a commercial base for taxation. And finally, the dry climatic cycle would return, which will lead to a return to a nomadic life. At least that's the theory. Then the last thing I have to say about the climate of the area is that recent reviews of historical Persian Gulf sea levels indicates that the levels were up to almost 7 feet or 2 meters higher than at present during the period of about 6,000 to 4,000 BC. 
This may also help to explain why the seaport of Eridu was so far inland. And after the introductory episode, you may have been wondering how I would work the environment into the history of the time surrounding the Bible. Now you know. Like I mentioned last week, there are several theories as to the location of Cush. The last one, the one I did not get to last week, is a region called Kish, spelled K-I-S-H, which was an ancient city in Sumer, in Mesopotamia. It is thought to have been located in modern-day Iraq, roughly 8 miles or 12 kilometers east of Babylon, and 50 miles or 80 kilometers south of Baghdad. A little history on Kish. Kish was occupied from the Jemdet Nasser period, roughly 3100 BC, gaining prominence as one of the preeminent powers in the region during the early dynastic period. The Sumerian king list states that Kish was the first city to have kings following the flood, beginning with Jushur. Jushur's successor is called Colassian Bel, but this is actually a sentence in Akkadian meaning, all of them were lord. Thus, some scholars have suggested that this may have been intended to signify the absence of a central authority in Kish for a time. The names of the next nine kings of Kish, preceding Etna, are all Akkadian words for animals, such as their word for scorpion. The Semitic nature of these, and other early names associated with Kish, reveals that its population had a strong Semitic component from the dawn of recorded history, with Kish being identified as the center of the earliest East Semitic culture. In this usage, the word Semitic refers to the languages used by the people of the region. The twelfth king of Kish, appearing on the Sumerian king list, Etna, is noted as the shepherd who ascended to heaven and consolidated all the foreign countries. Although his reign has yet to be archaeologically attested, his name is found in later tablets, and Etna is sometimes regarded as the first king and founder of Kish. The 21st king of Kish on the list, a name I realize I will totally mess up, Enema Bargasi, who is said to have captured the weapons of Elam, is the first name confirmed by archaeological finds from his reign. He is also known through other literary references, in which he and his son Aga of Kish are portrayed as contemporary rivals of Dumazid, the fisherman, and Gilgamesh, early rulers of Uruk. Some early kings of Kish are known through archaeology, but are not named on the king list. The third dynasty of Kish is unique and that it begins with a woman, previously a tavern keeper, Kubal as their king, or perhaps their queen. She was later deified as the goddess Kiba. Afterwards, although its military and economic power was diminished, Kish retained a strong political and symbolic significance. Just as with Nippur to the south, control of Kish was a prime element in legitimizing dominance over the north of Mesopotamia, such as Assyria. Owing to the city's symbolic value, later rulers claimed the traditional title of King of Kish, even if they were from Akkad, Ur, Assyria, or Babylon, among many others. Kish continued to be occupied through the pre-Babylonian, Old Babylonian, Kassite, Neo-Assyrian Empire, and Neo-Babylonian periods before being abandoned. The Kish archaeological site is actually an oval area roughly 10 square miles, divided by the dry former bed of the Euphrates River. After irregularly excavated tablets began appearing at the beginning of the 20th century, the area was identified as being Kish. A French archaeological team excavated the area between 1912 and 1914, finding some 1,400 old Babylonian tablets 
which were distributed to the Istanbul Archaeological Museum and the Louvre. Later, a joint field museum out of Chicago and University of Oxford team under Stephen Lagnon excavated from 1923 to 1933, with the recovered materials split between Chicago and Oxford. As of today, it is believed that the area of Kish, with a K, is the most likely location of Kush. So, maybe this was the region of the Gion. That's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll give a general overview of the history of the region of the Old Testament. This, of course, will just be a prelude to all the history episodes to follow. As always, you can find information about the podcast at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at thechurchestheworld.com. And you can find the Facebook page by searching the term The Church is the World as four separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thank you.